Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. I always like starting off my podcast with a big thank you to all of my listeners and supporters. And if you can, always share and like the podcast. It's a pleasure for me to be here and every week meet somebody new. And coming soon will be all my podcasts. They'll be available on my Should Have Listened to My Mother YouTube channel. So I'll get that link out to you guys as well. This week's guest describes himself as the grandfather of baby sign language and child development researcher who's interested in early learning strategies for young children. He's committed to teaching parents and young babies easy communication tools, and he's the author of several baby sign language books. Dr. Joseph Garcia is also very committed to being there for his family. Hi, Dr. Garcia, and welcome to my podcast. Well, hello, and it's an honor to be here with you. So, Joseph, where where are you located now? Where are you speaking from? Uh, I'm I'm here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, about 15 miles south of Canada, and six miles in from the water. Oh my goodness! It must be absolutely beautiful. I'm gonna have yes, to come out and visit. <laughs> <laughs> so, sign language teaching infants with six months and up how to communicate. It's very impressive. You're also a doctor, is a doctor of education. Yes. Well, I, I don't recommend teaching sign language. I recommend modeling sign language. You want the baby to discover the signs through their own resources. But uh, yeah, that the, the general idea is to communicate through gestures before a baby can talk is a really valuable and wonderful experience. Now, you seem like you're a pretty balanced guy. You like spending time in the outdoors. You also are involved with Northwest Indian College. You're interested in proper communication or full-rounded communication. I have a feeling your mother had something to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) She had everything to do with it, actually. In fact, I've got a few... Uh, knowing I was going to be on your program, I started to collect a few of the sayings that she kind of drummed into my head over the years, and I, I shall uh, share some of those pearls of wisdom with your audience during the interview. What's her name? Her name was Emma, and uh, she was uh, she passed away at 99 years old, and she was busy one day and gone the next, uh, the way I think we'd all like to have our lives live. Uh, but um, she was, she was the, as, as I mentioned during her services, she's the kind of mother we all wished we had, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, she was a kindergarten teacher, so she was for her entire life. In fact, at her services, I had sometimes three generations of people that were all her students. It was amazing to see uh, that kind of a spread of people who she influenced over her years. Well, those first years of school, your teacher has... A, a huge effect on a child, oh, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my. Yeah, there's this time called the cultural imprint that a young child goes through, and the first three years are really critical, but then those next three also really establish a lot of the uh, basic, uh, how would you say, motivations and interests and all the things that, that a child, whether they like to learn or whether they fear learning, all those all those aspects are really important in those first five or six years. And your mom hailed from where? Oh, gosh, she was born in Mobile, Alabama, and then she moved up north to Wisconsin, uh, where, where she adopted me. And, uh, and her, uh, she, you know, she, she was part Native and part African.
African Americans. So uh, uh, she got out of the South <laughs> and went up north. I guess this is back a long time ago. Now you're talking about the turn of the century. So um, you're talking about 1905, 1906 or so. So that was a pretty tough time, you know. Uh, yeah, especially to be down south. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why she went up north. It wasn't the, wasn't that easy up north either, but uh, it was still better than it was down south. I understand. And then she met your father, obviously, and they started a family. Yes, yes. They uh, a little late. They started a family a little late. They were in their forties when they uh, adopted me, and then she, they adopted my sister five years after that. I was told I was adopted off the Tatawanami reservation uh, from also a mixed race. Uh, mother who couldn't handle the responsibilities, apparently, so she put me up for adoption, and uh, I was very, very lucky enough to get the, the woman that I had for a wonderful mother to raise me and inspire me. Now, you mentioned in your email they ch- they chose the surname Garcia for maybe well, economic I, yeah. reasons? Yeah, my father was... Uh, yeah, a, a lot of people don't understand that within the communities back in those times. There wasn't the same, how would you say, hierarchy of mother, father, family kind of figuration that we saw in the early sitcoms in the 50s. But uh, there was a lot of moving around, and people were were a lot of uh, single-parent moms running around with a lot of kids, and my dad was one of those. And he was mixed-raced also because she had um, apparently some issue happened with her with a Caucasian man, and he came out light-skinned. And so... Back in those days, black people couldn't get work, so he uh, took on the name Garcia to see if he could pass for something other than black so he could get work. And that was a thing that they did back in the 20s and 30s, I guess. So he uh, did that, and that's where the name Garcia came from. Interesting. What was it about your mom that made her a great teacher? I never saw her get angry ever in my life. Um, (laughs) Not even at you? No, no, well, shoot, you, you know what's worse than anger? A look of disappointment. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> you have to understand that when when you look at your mama and she is proud of you, and then all of a sudden you do something where that look of disappointment, boy, that will cut through you so fast. Um, anyway, she didn't have to get angry. I never heard her and my dad argue once in their life. They always would discuss things and disagree on things, but they would always do it in a very, you know, conversational fashion, at least around us. Well, who knows what happened? We're gone. But uh, anyway, but no, she just was really kind and gentle. And again, she would just repeat these little phrases from time to time to, ex- to express to me that uh, this is the way the world is. Uh, you know, she used to tell me all the time, son, you're going to have to do twice as much to get half as far. Now, a lot of children hear that from their, especially people from my community, because it was tough during those times in the 50s, and you know, you have to do twice as, you have to get better grades, you have to do everything better, because it's going to be a struggle all the time. So uh, I heard that a thousand times, oh, you have to do twice as much to get half as far, so go ahead and just deal with it. Do you think that you did work twice as hard? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess compared to me, it's all perspective. You know, my friends tell me that I do twice as much in, in the morning than most people do all afternoon. Uh, but that's just that's my nature. I like to do things. I, well, one of the phrases that my mom used to say, moss does not grow on me. 
And I don't want any of it to grow on you either. <laughs> so it, it was her, her way of saying, don't be a couch potato. You know, get, get up and do something. Do, you know, my dad made me learn four instruments, one string, percussion, uh, wind, and a piano. So uh, either you're practicing music, you're, you're out doing chores, you're, you're doing something all the time. There is no, there is no just sitting around usually because there's always something to do. And, and I guess when you start seeing that pattern in your life, and your parents show example that pattern you just think of it as the way life is it's not stressful or hard or anything it's just it's the way it is you know um, so did you grow up in a rural area no urban right across from the projects i was uh, we we didn't live in the projects there was a street across from it but you know i, I hung in the projects because that's where where we lived you know there's a uh, inner city parts i was in, raised in milwaukee and it was in definitely um, in, in, in the uh, urban part of town. And then I lived in uh, Inglewood out in L- L.A. for middle school. And uh, uh, first Watts, and then we moved to Inglewood, and then uh, back to Milwaukee again. And then I cut out after that and went up to the Army and went over to Europe. And from there, I could never go back to a big city once I was out in the, in the world, you know. I had to come back and do something new. Did you move around for work for either of your parents or just? No, I was able to stay in, in, in Wisconsin pretty much most of my, up until I was 18, until I went off to college for, I went to uh, two years of college, first MIT, then Stout, uh, University of Wisconsin Stout, and then um, uh, Milwaukee Institute of Technology. They changed the name to MATC, I think, after that. So uh, kind of a joke among all of us guys. Yeah, I went to MIT, but this is the wrong one. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, no, we, 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 I went to community college first. Then I went to, you know, because my grades weren't that good, I kind of fooled around in high school quite a bit. And then I went to um, University of Wisconsin. And uh, from there I went uh, off to the military. Um, and um, before you knew it, I was back out of the Army. I was, on, I was lucky enough to eventually be on the ski patrol in the Alps. And that turned me on to living out in the mountains and getting involved, like you said, with dog slip machine and mountain climbing and skiing, snowboarding, all that stuff. Yeah, I can hear your dog in the background. Is that to how many dogs you have now? No, no, I don't have, I don't have a dog team anymore. I just my my daughter adopted a a, a rescue dog and then went off to college. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so now I have a dog again. Now you have another dog. <laughs> um, so- I noticed that you kind of briefly mentioned uh, a minute or so ago that you messed around in high school. How did your parents handle that? Well, she she would look at me and say, son, I know you can do better. You have to decide to do that. And then she would walk away. And again, I'd rather, so I, I didn't, I mean, I graduated high school in, 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 in the time frame, but I didn't, I, I would get an A in one class and a, and a D in another, you know, and uh, sometimes the A class was a hard class, and the D class was, you know, something like, I just wasn't into the, some of the stuff they were teaching or trying to teach back in the, you have to understand the curriculum <laughs> was not very progressive back in the 50s. <laughs> it sounds like one of my sons. He'd do terribly in gym or health and then get A's in all the hard classes. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but, and if your girlfriend happens to be in a different lunch hour than you are, I mean, you're going to get an F in that class no matter what. You know, or, or, uh, you know I mean, just you know, you skip, back in those days, you just skip classes, you do stuff. I mean, it was, it was back in a time when no one really 
first of all, kids of children of color weren't directed towards college-educated classes. They were just given all of them, you know, we used to call the bonehead courses and all the shop classes and all that, which would, to me benefited me because I learned how to build houses and all kinds of good things. But um, at the same time, I was not given any AP classes or, you know, uh, college prep classes. So I had to do make up all that at community college afterwards, which I did. But uh, um, it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It's just I didn't want to. It was an attitude thing, probably. Yeah. And a lot of young people feel that. You know, they, they don't see the relevance to what they're doing now as to what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, wow. absolutely. So was it was it because you had the support of two parents at home, you think, that and, and the, the balance and the grounding maybe that you at least took advantage of your shop class where a lot of kids would just go blow it off. Yeah, I suppose. Well, my dad was gone a lot because he was trying to transfer out to California, so he left for a year to work for Greyhound, and they made you transfer from city to city to city to get out to a place. So he was gone for a, a year, and that was just... My, my mom was a single parent for about two years there, two and a half years, and that was during my um, middle school and first year of high school. So the result of all that was that I was... Not wild, but, you know, I, I definitely was a challenge, I'm sure. Uh, and again, there was school wasn't as important as my social life at the time. So um, uh, my grades suffered. But again, once I didn't want to get that disappointed thing, so I hung on enough to, to get by, but I didn't really assert myself at all. Well, it seems like you certainly made up for that. Now. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I felt like I could go back and do it over again. I'll tell you what, I, it took me 12 years to get a BA because I didn't even know what I wanted. I used to go from college to college and say, well, I don't want to do that. No, that doesn't. I, I started in psychology, and every six years, some new philosophy would come by and they'd trash the old stuff. I go, no, I don't want to learn something that becomes obsolete in a year or two. Um, and I would look at engineering and things, but I didn't want to sit in an office and just design things. So, you know, I just went through different things, and I thought, and the biggest thing is that I was exposed to young children who were disabled or other-abled, as I used to call them. Um, they could sign, and, and they, they could understand, uh, hear music much better than I could. Uh. So anyway, I, um, uh, I was open to the idea of education and learning other culture things, and I did. I learned some sign language just out of... Curiosity. I had friends who were deaf, so I learned sign from them rather than going to a class. And I was uh, absorbed into the deaf culture and learned sign language sort of from native signers as if I was deaf. In fact, I even put earplugs in my, in my ears one summer and just hung with all my deaf friends a lot and just became deaf and learned it that way. And that really helped, helped me understand the importance of the cross-cultural what is the correct terminology? Is it hearing impaired? Is it hearing disabled? Is it deaf? What's the correct terminology? With, with, within the deaf community, we, we refer to each other as deaf. And some are vo- verbally deaf, uh, you know, people who can speak and, but are, are still deaf. Uh, hearing impaired, we, we don't say we're sight impaired, you know, or, or it, it's usually better just to, if, if a person is in the deaf community, then they're in the deaf community, they're, they're, they're deaf. They're deaf people. Um, uh, it's not so much hearing impaired. That's that. Yeah, if, if, if you you don't call someone hard of seeing, <laughs> you know, so uh, oh hard gosh. of hearing. There, there's a bunch of these of these terms that just have sprung up that uh, that that people just don't know how to ex- 
express that idea, that concept. But anyway, yeah, it's the deaf com- community, deaf people, D-E-A-F. Right. I, just, I just don't want to offend anybody. I understand. No, it, it, you have to know how, how, how do we refer to, to mixed race people now, you know? We have a whole new, you know, because which two or three races are you and how do we refer to you as, because they used to have on my license, black, white, or other. <laughs> so we had to decide, are you black, white, or other? I want to go back to your mom and uh, talk sure. about a little bit about what she was like in the home. So if she was she working all day long? Did you have to cook dinner while she came home from the school or something? How did you help out around the house? Did you have a role in that? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, we had chores, but mostly it was that uh, she would teach school, come home, make dinner, clean, keep the house clean. She was just, like I said, uh, I didn't see any other comparison, but I really noticed that our home was pretty clean and neat, and we had good meals every night and all that. I go to my friends' places, and their place wasn't so clean, and there someone threw a hot dog in a in a bucket of in a pan of water or something once in a while. It wasn't quite the same. So I guess that I lived in a very, very what I would consider privileged environment as far as. I had a mother who would work all day, come home, make dinner, keep the house clean, and just probably work. That's why she lived to be 99. She didn't have time to die. She used to say, I said, Mama, because then she had to go and correct papers, you know, when she was all done cleaning the house at night. And I would help wash dishes. We'd take my sister and I would take turns wash dishes. Sometimes I think we made more work than, you know, than help. But, um, and I would scrub the floor once in a while and do a little, little bit of cleaning. But I was never required to do it. Uh, I was, uh, they told me, no, you practice your music now or you go do your homework. Because, you know, I went to a school where they had lots of homework in grade school. So um, we had maybe two hours of homework every night at, at least. Uh, so that was, again, twice as much to get half as far. So, uh, and she used to say to me all the time, she says, well, son, I'm too old to be polite. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> and I remember she would, she would say that a lot, a lot to me. So I'm going to start using that because I'm getting a little older now. So I can start saying that to my people at work. I'm sorry. I'm too old to be polite. I'm going to tell you the truth. No more beating around the bush. Save the time. That's right. Yeah, I just, time is too short. Like mama used to say, she says, well, I'll rest when I die. <laughs> Emma, you should take a vacation. Oh, no, no, no. I'll take a rest when I die. And she sounds she wonderful. Up. Oh, amazing woman. But I didn't I didn't realize it until it's, you know, that's, that's the thing about these wonderful people in our lives. When they're gone, all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, what? Wow. You know, just what, what did we have? Amazing. I mean, I, I appreciated it then, but I didn't know how much I appreciate it until I see the rest of the world and and see what what, what you know a, a comparison. We, my sisters and I, uh, were just talking about. Um, how we wish we had spent time getting to know our grandmother more. Right. And she she was Italian. She came from Italy. Um, she was in this arranged marriage. But and we spent a lot of time with her, but we never really got to know her. You know, her cooking was amazing and all that. But so yeah, I think a lot of people have those regrets. But you know what? I think sure. we'll have an opportunity to meet up with them again. Yeah, well, not only <laughs> that, but also being aware of that will hopefully make you. Yeah, hey, I'm gonna reach out and just spend a little bit more time with Auntie So and So or Uncle So and So, just just because they're still here. That's so you know, the uh, so the truth. 
Yeah. Uh, now, I wanted to ask you, what did your mom have a favorite meal? Did you have a favorite meal that your mom used to cook? <laughs> she used to complain that all I ever liked was eggs, hot dogs, and peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a young kid, you know, you just, uh, <laughs> and so, but she, no, she'd cook all kinds of things for me, but uh, mostly I, I would eat peas and corn. Yeah, I, I wasn't into asparagus. She, she would have Brussels sprouts, all kinds of good, you know, greens, collard greens, all kinds of good stuff, but, um, and I wasn't into a lot, lot, lot of that stuff growing up. Not until I got older. When I got to be an adult, I just, in fact, I went meatless for about 20 years there, and then I finally sort of found a good balance between a little bit of a fish and some meat and good vegetable diet and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You said she was originally from Alabama. Did she have a lot of Southern influence in her life, your maternal grandmother? Probably, but she, I think she, you know, she tried to conform with what was going on up there in Wisconsin. Um, we had a lot of meat and potatoes and just, you know, like I said, whenever we went down to visit people in Okamugie, Oklahoma, and other, Tulsa and Chandler, other places, where she had some people, you know, and uh, and, and, and we go to uh, uh, East St. Louis, yeah, she had some people there, and then we go out to California. They would have uh, dishes and meals, and I'll tell you what, we went in place, and they were making chitlins, and I don't want to be near that place again for the smell of those chitlins just drove me about crazy. Um <laughs> <laughs> because I just wasn't used to it. You know, I didn't grow up or, or sure. around chitlins and a hosta bagu is what they had. All this, the, the, these, these, um, these meals that uh, they ate when we were visiting our, our, uh, my mother's people, and uh, I remember the smells were not what I was used to up in Wisconsin. Did you ever get to know your mom's mom, Emma's mother? Oh yeah, no, 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 no. She, she was in a bend. She outlived. Everybody. So we only had a short glimpse at her people before they're all dying off. Because she was already in her 40s, and I was before I was aware of things that she was already in her 50s. By that time, most of her people were were gone. You know, so uh, yeah, we didn't have much of that. How old was she when she retired from teaching? Oh my gosh, she was in her 80s when she retired. She was. Wow. Oh yeah, she she's taught at private schools down in Los Angeles, in Claremont, California, right near the uh, Claremont College. There was a small uh, a private school that they is that had the her. Seven Sisters School. That's beautiful. Uh, I don't know, but it was a private private. I, I don't remember the name now. It's been a while, but uh, she taught. I, I, like I said, just when I went to her services, I pictured a 99-year-old woman we have six other elderly people sitting in a row, you know, with, and they had a church choir there singing for her, and this place had at least 450, 500 people in it standing along the walls. The place was full. And I said, what is, who are these people? And these are all people she had influenced throughout, throughout her life that flew in from all over the country to pay homage to, to her, and I just, I couldn't believe it. To Emma. Yay. How yeah, wonderful. Yep, and in fact, because of that, I adopted a, a little girl, too, and uh, and she's now off to college in her second year. And she left the dog with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she adopted a dog and left it. But you know what? This is something that my mom used to say. She says, son, don't pick something up before you have a place to put it down. And that's not just stuff. That's people. That's things in your life. That's everything. Don't pick something up until you have a place to put it down. 
And <laughs> Do you remember a particular instance when she used that? Just in general, like, well, yeah, if you pick something big up and you go walk and you go find a place to put it down, you have to walk around looking for a place to set it down, of course. But relationships, too, you know, if, if you are having an insincere relationship based on, on let's say, falsehoods or something, you, there's no place to put that away. It's going to be floating, so you don't want to pick that up if you're not going to put it down somewhere. Oh, you should write a book about her with her sayings. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, there's, a, there's a stack of them here. There's, one of them I used to love is that... Uh, you know, um, you always have to do something before you can do something else. And there's always something. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I go to do something. It says, wait, I can't do that until I do this first. And there's always something. You know, there's always something to do. And there's always something you got to do before you can do something else. So it's, it's funny. Wow, she's great. Oh, yeah. My guest is Dr. Joseph Garcia, and I want to spend a couple of minutes sharing the wonderful work that you've done. And it's a lot about influencing little ones with sign language and helping them communicate and express themselves and get their pain or emotion or their desire across to these adults who are supposed to be so smart. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll tell you what, in a nutshell... The difference when a child that young can actually use their internal resources to affect their environment makes the difference during that important culturally imprinting time in their life that they can kind of control or navigate through life with their own internal resources rather than riding the roller coaster of life where they don't know what's happening next or what's going on or they have no control or anything. That really sets the stage for their entire life experience where they must use their internal resources to affect their external environment. And communication is their first real experience with that uh, power, if you call it that, that esteem-building experience where they can see mom nursing and doing the sign for milk, and then when they reach out to sign milk, they get fed. Wow, I can affect my environment. Of course, they're going to sign milk for everything that they want, so it's up to the parent to give them what they need in order to communicate that. But uh, again, and that's why I developed this uh, after being at the nucleus of this for so many, many years, almost 35 years now. I just uh, have developed, I think, the most effective little system that allows parents to do this without taking a lot of time and having to study or learn anything. Um, it's a great little 14-day program. Each day you learn a few more signs for a certain event. Boom, before you know it, you're communicating with your child and modeling all these signs, and eventually your child reaches up and starts communicating back to you, and it's so cool. <laughs> it's really the, the videos, and I'm, I did a lot of research before speaking with you, and it, it's just magical seeing not only the, the baby's face and reaction, but the parents as well. It's pretty great. So you've written 14 Days to Baby Sign Language, as well as Dr. Joseph Garcia's Complete Guide to Baby Sign Language, and finger spelling book. It's a finger spelling book. And you can get all of this information and more about Dr. Joseph Garcia on his website at drjosephgarcia.com. Thank you well, thank so you. much for joining me. And I'm so happy that we got to, to talk a little bit about Emma because it's really oh, important yeah. that we share these stories. And, and hopefully I'm going to be able to take her with me wherever I go. <laughs> well, you know, when, when, when she says, well, son, yeah, you're more than one race. We picked a child who had the best qualities of all the races put together into one child. And that was my her way to keep me kind of resilient against the bullying of other people saying, you were adopted. She says, yeah, my 
Mama chose me. Your parents were stuck with you. <laughs> that's, that's how she dealt with that. Talk <laughs> about psychology. Excellent. Uh, well, this is old school stuff now. You know, she was she she was old, so she said, "Oh, don't don't listen to those kids. We chose you. Their their parents were stuck with them." <laughs> oh my We're going to have to leave it on that note, and I love it. Dr. Joseph Garcia, thank you for joining me on Should Have Listened to My Mother. Thanks for having me.